This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Taking the active psychoactive component of ayahuasca and pulling it into a modern scientific context. So we're going the approach of taking a fully synthetic, pure version of DMT that is molecularly identical to the DMT found in ayahuasca and finding a way to really administer it in a safe, gradual, and precise way that is controllable by the physician. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the health benefits of vitamin K2. We'll hear how the psychedelic DMT can help treat substance use disorders. We'll find out why lemons are so good for you. And lastly, we'll discuss the foods that contribute to anxiety. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is also a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm having a great day. How about you? I'm also having a great day. And we're today we're going to discuss something that is more obscure. Usually you and I, I wouldn't say it's mainstream, but it's stuff that everybody's heard of. But today we're going to talk about something that people may not know about, right? Definitely. This is one of those things when I'm researching stuff, I come across something and it tweaks my brain. And this one just has been tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. And literally, this has been an obsession now for me for about two and a half months. All my waking time is spent just learning more and more and more about this. Okay. So let's talk about vitamin K2 then. Definitely. So vitamin K2 is, as you said, probably one that most of your listeners don't know about. And I'll be honest, my knowledge of it was pretty light until a couple months ago. But here's the background. Vitamin K was discovered in the 1930s in Denmark. It was so big of a find that in the 1940s, work on it won the Nobel Prize. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's a big one. And the cool thing is vitamin K got its name from the word coagulation because in German, coagulation is spelled with a K, and vitamin K originally they thought that its only role in the body had to do with coagulation. But in the 1970s, a lot more work was done, and they discovered that vitamin K isn't one vitamin, but it's actually a family of vitamins, those being vitamin K1, which is involved in coagulation, and vitamin K2, which is involved in both coagulation and calcium balance. Hmm. And I know you might say, okay, calcium balance. It's interesting, but once you get into the meat and potatoes of what calcium balance actually does, it's fascinating. And it's an important part of the way we metabolize and build our bodies, right? Definitely. 
So vitamin K2 is available in two forms. Mm -hmm. You have MK4 and MK7. MK4 is the shorter version, and MK7 is the longer version. And that's the only way they differ. The good news is that your body has the ability to convert the longer one, MK7, into the shorter one, MK4, if it's required. That's one of the reasons MK7 is the preferred form. Now, when we're talking about natural health products, it always comes up eventually, well, how much do I have to take for an effective dose? Right. And that's where a lot of things go awry. Well, this one isn't that way. Vitamin K2 MK7 is a really small dose. It's effective in doses as low as 30 micrograms. Now, to put that in perspective, that's one two thousandth the weight of a grain of salt. Oh, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> it's small. The next question that normally pops up is, okay, it's a small dose, but how safe is it? Mm-hmm. Well, they've actually tested it in doses of 160,000 times its effective dose for long periods of time with no negative effects of any kind. Essentially, what they did is they tried to cause an effect yeah. that was negative. They couldn't, and they gave up at 160,000 times a regular dose. <laughs> okay. Is vitamin K2 something that the body produces itself, or is this something that we would get normally from our food? Like, explain how we get K2. Well, if we had the diet that our ancestors, say, six or seven generations ago ate, we would actually find some K2 in our diet. It would have been found in some fermented foods and in some of the byproducts of, for example, the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. But the problem is modern food preparation and modern farming techniques has essentially obliterated K2 from our diet. And that's a big concern. The reason is that the way that K2 works. K2 works by activating, or you can think of it as switching on, proteins and enzymes that are usually off. Okay. The specific proteins are osteocalcin, which essentially binds calcium into bones. Another protein called matrix GLA protein that removes calcium from arteries. <laughs> Here's inventive names. C, S, and Z proteins <laughs> wow. okay. that, that work together to manage coagulation. And something called protein kinase A, which is an enzyme which is involved in cancer suppression and prevention. So, so the switching on and off of the proteins and enzymes, is this something that we need or is this something that would be beneficial to our existence? It is something that we need to be healthy and to live longer. Okay. So is vitamin K one of those vitamins and minerals that gets added to our food? Is that how we get it? Not really. Essentially, if you want to have it from food in any meaningful amount, Mm -hmm. there's really only one food that has it, and it's fermented soybeans, and it's called natto. Oh, gosh. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Say no more. For those who have not had natto before, it's an interesting texture. You may have read or seen it on TV. The beans get really sort of sticky and webby. Yep, I'll say it politely. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, that's putting it mildly, yeah. 
it's only really consumed in one small district of Japan. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everywhere else in the world, it's one of those, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But people don't generally eat it. And I can honestly say I've tried it. It's not the most pleasant taste either. No, it really is not. <laughs> I've also tried it. And, and I think I'll, I'll go for the supplements. So, so, so tell us, is it possible to supplement K2? Definitely. K2 supplements, one of the reasons that most of this research is relatively new, and when I say relatively new, I mean in the last 50, 60 years, Mm -hmm. is that up until recently, there was no way to stabilize K2. So they could do research in a lab, but there was no way to stabilize the molecule to actually give to people. That changed about 10, 15 years ago when it became viable and it was easy to keep it preserved, and now it's not a problem. You can find it in liquids, you can find it in capsules, tablets, powders even. However, here's the big thing. Because it's an oil-soluble vitamin, like vitamin D, Mm -hmm. you really want to take it in its oil form with other oil substances, because that way your body recognizes it properly and you increase its absorption dramatically. What I mean by that is if you take it in a powder form or say in a tablet, yeah, you'll get it. You just won't get as much of it and your body won't recognize it as well and use it as well as if it were in oil-based drops, for example. Is this something that everybody should be taking? Is it preventative or is it the type of thing that you're taking if you have a particular issue? It's actually both. The list of conditions that it helps prevent and helps reverse is massive. It it would take you and I hours to go through the list. It's that long. So this is something that's recommended to take daily by everyone, essentially over the age of one Mm. by Health Canada. And the interesting thing is, as a supplement manufacturer, we can do it and recommend people take it after the age of one. But in hospitals, they actually give it to newborns, although we can't sell our product for that purpose. They give it to newborns because it helps start their system and give them a good way to go and be healthy into the world. Is K2 part of like multivitamin type sets? Very rarely. You'll find it occasionally in multis. The reason it's not in multis for the most part is... A, because the dose is so small, when you're blending together hundreds of thousands of kilograms of things and you're trying to get 30 micrograms, it's really hard to guarantee you're actually going to get that in each tablet. Got it. The second reason is that because it's not so well known, people aren't looking for it. Right. Most companies wouldn't put it in because it's an increase in cost if it's something you're not looking for. All right, let's talk about cost for a moment. If, if I were to go get the supplements, is it going to be an expensive supplement for me to get? Or is it going to be like a cheapy, like vitamin D? It's not in the area of vitamin D, but it's because the dose is so low, you're talking more in the range of a vitamin C. Like vitamin D is ridiculously inexpensive. Right. It is. Vitamin K2 isn't that inexpensive, but it's not exorbitant. It's not like you're looking at, for example, a lycopene or a lutein, which is quite expensive per dose. This is relatively inexpensive. You're talking a dime... Maybe as if you're going really nice, really expensive, a quarter a day. Okay. So you mentioned earlier in the interview that this is crucial for metabolizing calcium. Explain the process a bit and, and how it works. Well, when most people think of calcium and calcium metabolism, they think of bones and teeth. 
Now, most people know that calcium and vitamin D work together to build strong bones and teeth. Right. The way vitamin D works is it helps to transport the calcium we take both from our food and our supplements, and it takes it from our gut into our bloodstream. Now, here's where the plot really thickens. Some of the calcium naturally moves from our bloodstream and will be put into our bones and teeth. That happens naturally, a percentage of it. Unfortunately, a good chunk, actually a significantly larger chunk of the calcium, will end up being deposited in our arteries. And when it goes into our arteries, it forms what's known as arterial plaque, also known as arteriosclerosis. And this is when calcium and fat together build up on the walls of arteries, causing two simultaneous things to happen. The arteries themselves get stiff and lose flexibility. At the same time, the deposits narrow and often block arteries completely. Now, here's the nasty part. Arteriosclerosis is the leading cause of heart disease, which Mm -hmm. in turn is the leading cause of death in Canada. So that's pretty grim. Yep. Now let's plug vitamin K2, MK7 into the equation. Think of it as vitamin D's tag team partner in a wrestling match. Vitamin D, again, moves the calcium from your gut to your bloodstream. But here, vitamin K2 moves the calcium from your bloodstream into your bones and teeth. Vitamin K2, MK7 is so good that it can remove existing calcium deposits from your arteries in addition to moving the new calcium that's coming from your gut. Essentially, with adequate vitamin K2, vitamin D can do its job properly, and calcium ends up in your bones and teeth where it's supposed to go, not in your arteries where no one wants it to go. Okay, so that's pretty amazing. Is there a limit to which the vitamin K will transfer the calcium from the blood vein walls and arterial walls to our bones, or will it always function that way? It always functions that way. That's how it works. The way it works is by turning on those proteins, activating them, and those proteins do the job. So as long as you keep taking vitamin K2, MK7N, it'll keep activating the proteins, and those proteins will keep doing their jobs, which is all they're supposed to do. So is vitamin K2 prescribed for people who are also taking statins or dealing with the increased cholesterol, which also sort of, that's the fat that builds up on the arterial walls? There are doctors who do that. It's not always going to be done because there can be other underlying conditions that'll complicate it, but often that does occur, yes. Okay. Are there any contraindications or if you're one of those people that has sort of uh, calcium building up in their arteries, you you should just be taking it? The only concern that you could have is there are certain people who have rare conditions or have drugs they're taking specifically to regulate blood clotting. And if if you have clotting issues or taking drugs regarding clotting, talk to your physician first. So is it the blood thinners that are contraindicated or is it the coagulants that are counterindicated? It depends which one to answer that question. Okay. Because there's three different proteins that vitamin K2 activates, the C, S, and Z, that interplay amongst each other to control coagulation, it depends which drug is being used to answer that properly. Okay. So we have time for maybe a question or two more. So what was the most interesting thing that you found out about K2? 
from your the, research over the last couple of months? The one that surprised me the most was actually when it came to vision. Okay. And what K2 does, the exact same proteins are activated. It actually helps remove calcium from the micro very, very tiny arteries in your eyes. And by doing that, it actually helps relieve the pressure in these arteries, which actually causes pressure spikes in the eye. By removing that, you're actually helping total eye health and reducing the risk of both glaucoma and cataracts. Hmm. And that one I didn't see coming, no pun intended. <laughs> That's funny. So with K2, is there anything specific we should be looking for if we go out to buy it in the store? Like, how should we be purchasing it? Normally, I would suggest actually doing it in an oil-based form. Ideally, just for cleanliness and quality, look for something that's certified organic because those are available options out there. And just make sure that it's something that's as clean as can be. As Always try and get your supplements as clean as you can be. Often you'll find it with vitamin D as well because they work hand in hand, as I said earlier, as the tag team partner. So often you'll find it with vitamin D. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how psychedelics can help treat substance use disorders on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Did you know that 1 in 16 people has a substance use disorder? Yet no proven treatments exist, and the recovery failure rates are stubbornly high. Entheon exists to invert the addiction recovery ratio and turn lost causes from the norm into the exception. It's pioneering a leading-edge addiction recovery solution using the psychedelic DMT molecule. Entheon is a publicly traded company listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol ENBI and on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange under the symbol 1XU1. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Timothy Coe, is Chief Executive Officer of Entheon Biomedical. He has a broad background of leading private ventures in the service sector, investor relations, retail, and technology. Timothy's passion for the psychedelic space is shaped by his firsthand knowledge of the shortcomings of the current mental health system. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Jamie, so much for having me. So we're going to talk about psychedelics and how they're being used for treatment in a growing way. And in some ways, it's kind of like a cool throwback to the 60s and Timothy Leary. But we've we've come a long way from that, right? Absolutely. All old things are new again, but a dramatically uh, recontextualized way. So I think what's driving this is really sort of the faults that are in the medical system right now, right? Particularly when we're talking about substance use and abuse treatments and their failings. So why don't you explain like sort of the area where, where your company's sort of filling the gap and the problems that are existing right now? I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, 
this did come about as a direct reaction to the limitations of the conventional you know, medicalized treatment models for treating substance disorder. And I think societally, we're all really sort of bearing witness to those failures right now. In Vancouver alone, you know, we have month to month overdose deaths somewhere in the 120 to 180 person per month range. And that's just one really shocking metric of you know, how the system has failed individuals. But yeah, I think we've seen not just in deaths, but you know, in, it's just at a societal level, I think, you know, drug addiction and substance disorder really does pull at the fabric of society at every imaginable level, you know, whether it's from hospitalization costs, policing, the prison system. It is a massive drain. And also on the personal level of families and individuals, it's one of the most destructive forces that are present within society. And all of the conventional methods of treating that right now are shockingly low in terms of efficacy rate. Some of the conventional models of treating uh, drug addiction, such as 12-step recovery or you know, residential treatment programs, have efficacy rates as low as 5 and 10%. And oh, when wow. you pair that with sometimes the you know, lifetime cost and even the individual cost per treatment event that can cost anywhere from five to $30,000, and realizing that often a drug user will have a half a dozen drug treatment stints in their lifetime, often resulting in an eventual death anyways. The way that things are stacked for drug users, it's shocking and really does need to be addressed from a totally different angle. So your company, Entheon, is taking a different approach. What is that? So the approach that's taken right now really does exist on the basis of trying to stabilize the patient with a variety of things, whether it's medication, suboxone, methadone, medication-assisted therapies that are meant to reduce drug seeking and pairing that with often other medications such as antidepressants, anxiolytics, antipsychotics, and things that are meant to stabilize the patient. So on that basis stabilization, some meaningful introspective work is meant to take place, you know, whether that's the right of psychotherapy or 12-step-led therapies that really do try to have the patient or the individual assess their internal makeup, what their barriers are, what their attachments are, really rework that so hopefully they get to a place of meaningful reformation of what their internal characteristics are. And then from there, the behaviors will hopefully change. But the reality is that for a lot of drug users and substance disorder sufferers, there is this really intractable component of trauma that makes conventional methods difficult. And often it's the case, as you attempt to go deeper and unearth some of these core truths, the natural function of trauma is to send that person further into retreat or send them into dissociation. So some of the conventional methods of treating drug users often fall really short. And so we understand that with psychedelics, that really key component of creating that profound introspective experience, that really epiphanal unearthing of core truths, that is intrinsic to the psychedelic experience. But that being said, you can't just deliver that without context and hope that the individual has a meaningful life-changing event. It really needs to be, given the gravity of the situation and the seriousness of what the outcomes can be, that needs to be properly contextualized in a psychotherapeutic environment. So that's precisely what we're trying to do. We're bringing through a powerful psychedelic experience in the traditional drug discovery pathway, but pairing that with meaningful psychotherapies to create that really important network of support that precedes the psychedelic event, and then following the psychedelic event helps to optimize and integrate that experience so that the individual can have hopefully some consolidation, you know, having that really meaningful 
a recontextualizing of who they are, their belief systems, what motivates them, and breaking through some of their traumatic barriers so that they can have that wholesale change in beliefs so that they can then have different behaviors, behaviors that aren't necessarily driven by you know, pain, fear, or feelings of lack of safety often uh, come with trauma. And you're using a particular psychedelic, which is the molecule DMT. Why this particular compound? So for the listeners that might not know what DMT is, DMT is dimethyltryptamine, and I'm sure that doesn't give much more clarity. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, and hopefully some of your listeners are familiar with that. I think in recent decades, we've seen a huge surge in interest in ayahuasca, and ayahuasca in general is this real reduction of what it is, but it is a psychoactive jungle brew that's employed generally in South American cultures by medicine people. It's uh, used for shamanic purposes to treat what we might call diseases of despair. So diseases of despair being, you know, an existential feeling of being lost, a sense of depression, something of a deeply psychological and emotional nature. So what what the ayahuasca experience does is create this massively powerful introspective journey where the individual will, you know, have all these really deeply personal experiences. But one of the limitations of ayahuasca is that from a medical and scientific perspective, it's very difficult to create uh, repeatable, precise, dosable form factors that would be suitable for medical purposes. So ayahuasca is comprised of DMT, another molecule that makes the DMT uh, bioavailable and long-acting. So the approach that we're taking is taking that, the active psychoactive component of ayahuasca, and pulling it into a modern scientific context. So we're going the approach of taking a fully synthetic, pure version of DMT that is molecularly identical to the DMT found in ayahuasca, and finding a way to really administer it in a safe, gradual, and precise way that is controllable by the physician. So whereas the DMT experience or the ayahuasca experience may take anywhere from 6 to 12 hours, during which time the individual may have a overwhelmingly difficult or, you know, a situation, an experience that might be, they might not be prepared for. In the case of ayahuasca, there is no off switch. I like to equate it to a solid fuel rocket, where once you light that wick, you are going as far as the rocket will take you. But with the way that we're approaching it from, which is continuous infusion DMT delivered by intravenous pump, we have the ability, if the experience gets too intense, to modulate the dosing and to even stop the dosing altogether. And so that the patients can say, well, well, I'm in too deep here and I'm not ready. And we can say, yeah, sure, fair enough. We'll stop the dosing. And that person will return to a functional baseline in about 15 or 20 minutes, which is a feature that isn't presently seen in other psychedelics, including psilocybin. You hear of the apocryphal uh, bad trip, but it sounds like you found a way to sort of avoid that. Are you microdosing, or is it just by using the pump you're able to regulate the dosage more precisely? Precisely. By using the pump, we're able to uh, regulate the dosing more precisely. So, yeah, you know, one of the intentions that we have that differs wildly from the traditional DMT experience, so the DMT... DMT, as it's commonly used, is in ayahuasca, as I've described. There's another way of administering DMT, which is to vaporize it and inhale it. But that's a very spiky, unpredictable way of taking DMT. So typically, the person will smoke DMT and come rapidly in the span of about 10 seconds. So 
in a really jarring way to a experience level that is pretty intense. And then, you know, they may take another hit and then very rapidly ascend to another even more intense level, which can be really jarring to the individual. So what we're doing is we're formulating the dosing strategy in such a way that that come on, that sort of onset of effect, is very gradual so the patient doesn't get overwhelmed and they arrive at that therapeutic place gradually uh, in a way that they're prepared for. And then, yeah, the dosing, uh, the intravenous administration gives us the ability to titrate, modify the dose, and cease if we need to. And I understand this is sort of a personal matter for you, too. It isn't just business, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, my story isn't necessarily unique. I think if you've been alive long enough uh, for a few decades, you probably know firsthand, either personally or by someone that you know, a story of loss from addiction. And um, my story runs the entire uh, length of my life. My brother was a longtime drug user since the age of about 17. He suffered a pretty traumatic event in his teens, and his way of coping was to pick up drugs. And of course, you know, initially it started you know, seemingly pretty innocently, but then over the course of a couple decades, that drug use really did escalate into something that was highly problematic and obvious. And yeah, over the course of about two decades, probably eight, nine, or ten different drug treatment center attempts. He was medicated on virtually every medication that was known to man. He spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours with therapists, psychologists. And yeah, over the course of about two years prior to the formation of the company, um, I was actually responsible for overseeing my brother's care, and he saw well-intentioned doctors, psychiatrists, and support workers all really earnestly trying to help my brother. He slipped further into a state of dissociation, and the symptoms of his drug use really did amplify, and we lost him eventually. And yeah, I took that as a, I mean, of course, as I was there, I didn't know what I was really witnessing, but following my brother's death in March of last year, it really did become apparent that it was a case study in all the attempted conventional methods, like the failing of those things to really elicit some meaningful change. And so I knew my own personal exploration and using psychedelics to uh, really break me through my own traumatic barriers that um, I was in treatment for, or I was receiving psychotherapy for. I used DMT about seven or eight years ago to work through some of my trauma issues that pertain to my family of origin, my relationships with my brother and my father, all these things that were really loaded and into me and sort of like really woven into the fabric of who I was. DMT really did help me reformat my understanding of my attachments, the meaning of my attachments, my resentments, and you know, my outlook on life. I was teetering on the edge of something really dark, and I'm so lucky that I never found out what was on the other side of it. I'm glad that it worked out for you, and I, I appreciate you coming on the show today to tell your business story, your treatment story, and your personal story. Will you come back again and share some more information with us? Absolutely. I'd be uh, delighted. That was Timothy Coe. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how lemons contribute to your health on the tonic. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. All medicinal mushrooms from New Roots Herbal are hot water extracted, so you get their full health benefits. Discover reishi, lion's mane, or resilience, a seven mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of New Roots Herbal medicinal mushrooms exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Everyone's talking about it, but do you really know what the Lemonade is? 
Don't worry, that's why I'm here to tell you. The Lemon Age is an era that doesn't understand age, but understands attitude. An era in which taking care of yourself is a must. And to do it, nothing like lemons from Europe. World leader of fresh lemon export. Welcome to the era of vitamin C. To the era of flavor, of freshness, of creativity. Welcome to the Lemon Age with lemons from Europe. Enjoy, it's from Europe. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Jose Antonio Garcia is the director of Olimpo, the interprofessional organization of the Lemon of Spain. Jose Antonio is an economist specializing in agri-food, specifically the fruit, vegetable, and citrus sector. He's interested in the food chain, innovation, internal cooperation with the sector, and knowledge management to face the challenges of the future. He believes in work as a key task that allows the Spanish agri-food sector to be positioned as European and global reference in food quality and safety. He also believes in sustainability as a key point. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you. So we're going to talk about lemons today. And everybody knows what a lemon is, but maybe you could give us a little bit of background into, you know, the history of lemons and how they've been cultivated, particularly in Europe. Okay, yeah. Uh, lemons are originated mainly in China and India, maybe more than 2,000 years ago. There is not really a, a good historical record about that, but what, what we know for sure is that the lemons were introduced in the Mediterranean countries in the 10th century by the Arabs. So they introduced them in countries like Turkey, in Egypt, in Italy, and mainly in Spain. You have to remember that the, the Arabs were, were living in Spain for more than 800 years. So uh, and lemons were a very important ingredient for the food they were eating. The Arabs introduced the lemons in, in Spain, and uh, it was not really a major cultivation. And it was really 60 or 70 years ago where lemons were produced, let's say, in a massive way in Spain. And so little by little, Spain has been considered in the recent years as the second producer of lemons in the world and the, and the first country exporting fresh lemons to more than 60 countries. So I traveled to Spain. It's a beautiful country. Where in Spain is most of the lemon production centered? Yeah, the, the, the lemon production is very well located in Spain in a relatively small area in the Mediterranean coast in a region called Murcia, which is very close to the north of Andalusia. And here is where the climatic conditions the quality of the water and the quality of the soil are very specific for the cultivation of lemons. So although lemons are part of the, of the big citrus family, they are not cultivated in the same area where oranges or easy pillars are cultivated because of the extraordinary weather and soil conditions that are needed for the cultivation. So we are really very, very specialized in the region of Murcia for the cultivation of this citrus uh, product. Yes, because you mentioned two areas that are well-known for for oranges. Valencia, everybody knows what a Valencia orange is, and and also farther south in Seville, they have oranges as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Oranges are more located in Valencia and Andalusia, and in the middle of these two regions, Andalusia and Valencia, is where Murcia is located. Ah. And uh, as I said before, we are are very, very well focused on uh, lemons. So let's talk about the cultivation and production of lemons. What can you tell us about how they're produced in Spain? What's the process? 
Well, we have to plant the tree, we have to plant the lemon tree, and we have to wait for at least four or five years to get right. the first crop of lemon. So the lemon growers have to be very patient because it is not just, just planting the lemon tree and, and next year or in a, in a couple of years you get the fruit. You have to be very patient. You have to, to know how to, to, to make the cultivation. We have a very special climate. It's, it's, like, it's very similar to the Celtic climate. So we have not uh, plenty of water, so we have been used to, to, to spend, to take the most from every little drop of water we have. But in some way, the, this water stress is the key point to get the acidity of the lemon and to get the best quality uh, for the lemons. If we cultivate lemons, for example, in Andalusia, where, where there is more rain or there is more water availability, the quality of the fruit is not so good as it is here in a, in a desertic area. This is, this is one of the key points. There are more than 10,000 growers dedicated to the cultivation of lemons. Uh, we have, let's say, 50% of the surface is dedicated in, for the production of lemons in various small orchards. And the other 50% of the, of the cultivation of the production is done in a, let's say, in a modern, uh, in a, mod- in a more modern way. I mean, more modern, uh, bigger areas. Sure, larger and, scale uh, farms. And, and yeah, that's right. So we have a combination of traditional and modern way of producing lemons. But at the end of the day, the quality of the fruit is is more or less the same. So you're able to maintain the quality even though you have maybe smaller farms with less technology or family-owned versus the large agri-farms, and the quality is the same across the board? Yeah, because the key elements are the weather and the quality of the soil, and the know-how we have here in in this small region in Spain. But the technology is obviously helping us uh, to produce, reducing costs, especially we are using technology to reduce the, the quantity of water we need to produce every single kilo of lemons and indeed we are we are using also technology we have very good projects to use the, all the big data to take some uh, to the, the, the use of drones to mitigate the use of pesticides mm-hmm. because with, the, with for example with the drones what, what we are doing with them is to, to monitor the orchards almost every week to detect every single uh, potential problem we may have with the, with the diseases. So uh, the sooner we realize we have a problem, the sooner we can react. And so uh, and in, in, in such a way, we can reduce the use of chemicals and the use of pesticides in the, in the cultivation of lemons. Are the lemons that you're growing, are they a challenging fruit to grow? Are they difficult to grow or are they relatively easy as compared to other produce? It's quite important to, to say that to the audience that a le- lemon tree is, a, let's say, a, a wild tree. It is not easy that, to cultivate lemons because uh, uh, if you, let's say, if you forget to go to the orchard for, for just a couple of weeks, the lemon trees try to, to, to get much bigger and to, and to expand them, themselves because they are a wild, a wild tree. Uh-huh. So uh, it, it is not really easy. You have to, uh, you have to monitor every, every, almost every day uh, to, to take the best of the orchard. And that's what the drones are for. It sounds to me like it, there's a fine balance there. And I understand it's important to you that this growing is sustainable. So what else are you doing to make the practice sustainable? Yeah, the first thing is to make an agreement about the definition of sustainability. Sure. And uh, it, it is really difficult because that depends very much on the, on the region. The concept of sustainability is not the same right. in North America or in the European Union. But at the end of the day, what we consider sustainability 
is to make the cultivation of lemons uh, with a guarantee to the grower that, that the grower is going to receive a fair price for for the for for the effort mm-hmm. he is doing. And the second and third pillar are the following. The second pillar is uh, we have to be socially responsible producing producing lemons. That means we have to comply with the with the European and national legislation on how to take care of the people involved in the, in the activity of lemons. And and the third pillar is the, the we have to be very responsible taking care of the of the environment. Of course. So that means reducing the use of chemicals at, at the maximum level and taking care of the biodiversity. This is essential. And what we have done in Spain in the last, let's say, eight years is to change our mind and to realize that taking care of biodiversity in the in the orchard is one of the key elements to reduce the use of chemicals. Because if you take care of the insects, let's say the good insects are going to be your friends. So if the good insects are, are your friends, they are going to fight to the diseases that may appear in the orchard. So we have changed our mind. 20 years ago, we were using a lot of chemicals, and now we are using very, very little chemicals because we are we are working with uh, with our new friends that are the insects that take part of the biodiversity of the orchard. So if somebody was concerned about the way the lemons are grown and, and wanted to specifically buy lemons from Spain, for example, is there a way to trace where the lemons are coming from? Or is it traceable? Yeah, yeah, it, it, is, it is 100% traceable because of uh, mainly two reasons. The first, the first reason is that uh, we have a, a very important regulation in Europe so we cannot market any kind of fruit if, uh, if we cannot guarantee the, the traceability of the fruit. So every single lemon is traced from the very beginning so we have all the information uh, uh, about the nursery where the, the lemon tree was, was produced and the, all the information of the grower, all the information about the process of cultivation. I have one last question for you and that is is there a unique flavor to the Spanish lemon? Is it a good-tasting lemon? Yeah, we have two, uh, two varieties. We have the fino lemon, which is the winter lemon, and we have the summer lemon, which is called verna. The, the two varieties are different, but the, the flavor of the Spanish lemon is unique in terms of, uh, especially of the acidity and the chemical content of the, of the, the, the natural chemical content of the, of the lemons. Indeed, it is true that the, let's say the, the, the average consumer is not maybe is not um, taking care about the special flavor or taste of the Spanish lemons. But this is one thing important, that the Spanish lemons are very well appreciated by the perfumery and cosmetic industry. And this is because the natural flavor and natural taste they have. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Jose Antonio Garcia. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the foods that contribute to anxiety. On The Tonic... The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Need better sleep? Brought to you by Ultramedic's new NanoGel mattresses. NanoGel is a trailblazing, no-pressure technology made from pure gel. Sleep 
virtually floating on air with Ultramedic's Nanogel mattresses. Now available with antimicrobial protection against viruses and germs. Make your health a priority this holiday season. Receive a free adjustable bed when you purchase any Nanogel mattress. Learn more at Ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Heather Lillico is a registered holistic nutritionist and yoga and meditation instructor. She focuses on mental health, having been overwhelmed by anxiety and depression for most of her adult life. By incorporating nutrients to nourish your mind and mindfulness techniques to slow you down, Heather knows it's possible to get unstuck from looping thoughts and enjoy the magic of a clear mind. For more information, you can visit heatherlillico.com or follow her on Instagram at heather underscore L-I-L. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. We're going to talk about the connection between what we eat and anxiety and tension, because there is a connection, right? Absolutely, yes. And you have a list of foods or types of foods that contribute to anxiety, which you call the five anxiety offenders. So how did you come to this and where did it all start? What's this all about? Well, it all started when I had a panic attack on my last day of exams in university. I had stayed up late the night before studying like many students. And Mm -hmm. in an effort to stay awake, I drank about four coffees loaded with cream and sugar, of course. Mm -hmm. And right before the exam started, I had the familiar feelings of a panic attack come on. My heart started pounding. My palms got sweaty. I felt this sense of doom, sort of like the world is ending. And I wondered, had I caused this? I'd always been sensitive to caffeine, but this felt really next level. And I realized that caffeine contributed to my anxiety. And when I removed it, I felt a lot better. And that's how this list was born. It started with caffeine. And over the years, I realized that there were other things that contributed to anxiety for myself and many clients. And so the list of five anxiety offenders was created. Okay. But is this list grounded in science or is it more empirical in terms of what you've come to learn? Great question. It's it's both. I mean, physiologically, things are happening in the body when we consume these foods that are on the list and that contributes to anxiety. And then I've also so notice just in working with many clients that when people remove these from their diet, that they feel a lot better. Okay. So is it fair to say that this group of five, it's worth exploring? It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody reacts to these the same way, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anytime we're talking about nutrition, we really can't talk in absolutes because there is such individual variation between people. This is, you know, what I've developed that through my practice focusing on anxiety, what I've noticed that clients do better without either removing or reducing. And then also from my own journey with anxiety that I have noticed I do better without. Okay. So the, the first on the list is caffeine. What's number two? Well, let's talk about sugar, because sugar is a big one. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about refined and processed sugar here. So white sugar, brown sugar, usually made from sugar cane or sugar beets. And the issue is that it spikes blood sugar, which leads to your nervous system getting fired up. And the response in the body is physiologically the same as anxiety. It's your fight or flight response being activated. And so that can contribute to anxiety. Okay. So for clarification, you're not talking about the sugars that occur naturally, for example, in fruits and vegetables and even meats where you caramelize it and sort of those sugars sort of come out, right? So we're not talking about avoiding all foods that have sugar content or carb content. 
you're talking about added sugar, right? Correct. Yeah. So the type of sugar that's coming from fruit, we have amazing things like fiber in there to slow down the absorption of sugar. And they also come along with other nutrients and antioxidants and benefits. I'm talking about the type of sugar where really everything else has been removed from it and you're just left with like that pure sugar sucrose that's going to spike your blood sugar. So I've actually actively over the last couple of years tried to remove sugar from my diet or added sugar. And it's interesting. I used to have sugar in my morning coffee, which I don't anymore. And at first I couldn't stand the taste of the coffee without it. But then you sort of adjust, right? Your palate adjusts to it. You almost don't know. I don't notice it anymore. And if anything, when somebody's added sugar to something, it just becomes so sweet that I can't have it anymore. Well, absolutely. I mean, your taste buds have changed. And that's what happens over time when we reduce sugars that our taste buds change and our baseline level of what's sweet drops a bit lower. Okay. So if if we're not having processed sugar, what can we have to replace it? So as you mentioned, I mean, fruit is a fantastic alternative if somebody's craving something sweet, but there's some really other good options out there. Lately, I've been loving date sugar Mm -hmm. is another good one. It's a real whole food alternative. It comes with some minerals in there. We also have monk fruit is another one that's starting to get a lot of momentum behind it and research is starting to show that it has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects on it. And we also have things like honey and maple syrup, fantastic options too. I'm not saying cut sugar out of the diet. That sounds like a really boring life to live, but I'm just saying, you know, moderation and maybe explore some other more nutritive options. Right. And and they all have different glycemic levels too, right? So it's a question of how quickly they're absorbed and some are better than others, but I agree with you. You don't necessarily have to go sugar-free. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They are going to spike the blood sugar in different ways. And anytime we're including sugar with other real whole foods, then it's going to slow down the absorption of that sugar anyway. All right. So we've mentioned caffeine and sugar. What's next on your list? Let's talk about alcohol for a moment. Okay. Because alcohol depletes vitamins and minerals that we need for mood, and it's also going to affect gut bacteria. Now, your gut bacteria, we've spoken before about it, how the bacteria in your gut produce a lot of your neurotransmitters that help you feel calm and help you feel happy. And so, again, I'm not saying completely cut out alcohol, but, you know, as we're approaching the holidays, something to, to think about of maybe mixing in like a mocktail or two or switching to some sparkling water or kombucha, something else to maybe offset some of that. And what's next on your list after alcohol? Another one that I often suggest people think about how it affects them is red and processed We know that this has been linked with inflammation and a side effect of inflammation can be anxiety. And there's just so many alternatives out there these days. I have a lot of clients that go more of the plant-based camp uh, and we have things like lentils and soy and chickpeas and nuts and seeds and fantastic alternatives to these other foods. But when you, when you say meats, you're not talking about all meats, right? Like it's re- is it red meat and, and processed meats that are the culprits or is it all meat? That's what most of the research has been done on is the red and processed meat. So I'm talking about like the beef and pork, not really so much like chicken and fish and processed meat. I'm talking about like bacon and ham, the kind of cured meat. Right. That's where most of the research is, is lying that that type of meat has been linked with inflammation. But I think it, again, is such an individual thing that a lot of clients, when I take them more plant-based, they do feel a lot better. They do, you know, recover faster from their workouts. They do feel more energetic, but not to say that that is the right choice for everybody. Okay. And what is last on your list? What's number five? Let's 
talk about dairy because most people are kind of sad about this one when I mention this one. And we do know that dairy is kind of addictive. It activates reward receptors in the brain. But I will say that about 95% of my clients do better without this in the diet. And many of us lose the enzyme to process it as we age anyways. And the result is that can lead to digestive issues and inflammation in the body, which can then cause anxiety. So what is your overall recommendation in dealing with these five? If somebody came to you and they had anxiety, where would you start and how would you deal with these five? Because if you remove all five, it's a really limited diet. It might seem that way at first, sure. And I think I like to meet people where they're at. So, you know, first in our first visit, I often assess the client's diet and say, just look at, you know, how many of these things are they having in their diet? And maybe if there's one that I think is like the biggest culprit for anxiety, we'll think about removing that. Just as an example, I had a client who was drinking eight coffees a day. And eight. she came to me, eight wow. coffees. Okay. And I was like gobsmacked when yeah. she told me. And so we just made a goal to reduce it down to five. And even with that, her anxiety improved. Like these small tweaks can lead to really big changes. And so maybe we might tackle, you know, which one do you think is a problem in your diet? Which one do you think is in excess? Or I might make some recommendations around which ones I think are excessive or which ones are going to lead to the the biggest impact. So do you work on the elimination diet process where it's completely removed for a number of weeks and then you try and introduce it back to see if that's the culprit or how would you assess it? I don't typically use elimination diets because I do think that they are really restrictive and food is meant to be enjoyed and it's really hard for people to stick to. So I see when I do elimination diets, the compliance level is so low that I just don't think it's worth it. So often what I'll do is to sort of assess, you know, where are the opportunities that, and it's not really just about removing, right? It's about, okay, if you're not going to have this, let's talk about what you can have instead. That's a more inclusive model because even without these five things in the diet, you would have an opportunity to replace them with so many more delicious things that are, you know, full of a variety and lots of different nutrients. Certainly like removing caffeine and alcohol and even sugar, you're probably not missing much from your diet. But when you start removing sources of protein, then I think you really have to be mindful of what you're going to make it up with, right? Because like for a lot of people, they're getting protein from dairy and from meat, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why it's beneficial to work with a nutritionist doing these things, because that's something that on my end, I'm always looking out for. Are you having a, a balanced diet and it's we can't just remove things from the diet we have to add things in so I, as an example if somebody was to remove meat from you know a, a major meal it wouldn't just be that you're having like your vegetables and, right. and your rice there it's okay let's add in some plant-based protein right that so it's having those swaps available so that you're right people are still meeting their protein needs they're still getting a variety of nutrients in the diet because with anxiety specifically as well we see that People are chronically found to be low in certain nutrients like magnesium and and zinc and omegas. And so we do want to make sure that they're getting a variety in the diet to add these things in. Fantastic. And, And if we do this, how quickly will we see results in your experience? Well, this is something that I work on in the first week of my program for anxiety, 30 Days to Calm. And in the last round of the program that I ran, nobody removed these perfectly because it it is hard. Within that first week, though, people still saw improvement. So I would say, you know, within a week of removing or even reducing these things, you're going to see a benefit of it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come again soon? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Timothy Coe, Jose Antonio Garcia, and Heather Lillico. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is now available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the approach to health and wellness, choosing the right cutting board, exercise for arthritis, and the ways to share your fantasies and desires with your partner. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.